This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I'm speaking with Andrea Pollard. Andrea is a German-born author and clinical psychologist with an extensive background in psychodynamic therapies, meditation, and Ericksonian mind-body work. She's the founder of the Los Angeles Center for Zen Psychology and is the author of a new book with Sounds True called A Unified Theory of Happiness, an East-meets-West approach to fully loving your life. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Andrea and I spoke about exactly what is happiness. We talked about the role of relationships in happiness and what Andrea calls the wings of happiness, which are the two modes of happiness, which she refers to as the basic mode and the supreme mode. We also talked about ambition and how ambition can be a source of unhappiness, but also a source of happiness. And finally, we talked about why happiness actually is a commitment. Here's my conversation with Andrea Pollard. Andrea, you've spent 12 years of your life researching the subject of happiness. And what's interesting to me right off the bat about something like happiness is that it seems like it's a hard subject to define, that people can't even agree on what it is necessarily. Well, you know, this person's happiness looks like this, this person's happiness looks like that. So how did you research a topic like this that's so hard to define, and how do you define it when you talk about happiness? Happiness is really a very big subject, and... uh, all people have different associations with it. It's a very new subject. So we think we talk about the same thing, but really we, we, we're not. So some people, a lot of authors avoid that question. Um, and even research authors, they, uh, they say, oh, we kind of know what happiness is. And so we don't define it. But, uh, yeah, I, I felt that it was very important for us to find a common language. And when people say they, we can't really talk about it because everybody has so many definitions, then I disagree because we, I think we have as many reasons for happiness as we have people. So we have a lot of different causes of happiness. Yeah. But the phenomenon is very similar to people. And uh, when I did my research uh, uh, on happiness, I looked at hundreds of explications of happiness in in literature and in my sample group of people who had an expressed interest in happiness. And um, 
I realized that there was a common thread the way they they talked about happiness or wrote about happiness, and that somehow they all pointed to the full life, to the good life, to to a life that made them fully alive, mm -hmm. full with vibrancy, mm -hmm. something that. I call the experience of participation. So that's how I ended up defining happiness, an experience of full life participation. And um, that is described from very many different angles. Again, you have different groups of people who talk about how they get to that experience of participation in a different way. So I realized that there was one kind of people who were talking about happiness as if it was a relationship with life that had to be just discovered, just realized. We didn't have to do anything for it, mm -hmm. but it was right now in the here and now. And so I call that, that's, that's the non-active way of participation in life. That's when we are feeling um, serene, And uh, when we, we realize our already existing connections in life. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people, and I describe that more from the Western point of view, who feel that they always have to do something in order to be happy. So they're in an action mode, mm -hmm. which I call the basic mode of consciousness. And that leads them to feel fully alive, feel that they are really participating in life when they are connected with something outside of themselves, not something within, um, like our consciousness or the life that's within us, but with something concrete in the outside, a goal mm -hmm. or a concrete person. And that's a very different way of getting to that experience of participation. And so in my understanding of happiness, Happiness is really a combination of these two ways, of the non-active way of participation and the active way of participation. Very interesting. So mm -hmm. from your interviews with people as well as what you read, these two categories mm -hmm. emerged, what you mm -hmm. call the basic mode and the supreme mode or mm -hmm. the being, the non-action mode. And did this categorization emerged to you as an original observation based on what you were reading and the interviews that you did with people? That, to me, is probably my only original thought that I've ever had. Yeah, I mean, well, congratulations. I think so. I, I think that because the, the synthesis is basically leads to the synthesis. This observation leads to the synthesis of Western and Eastern thought. So I felt, you know, we... When the Westerners, we want to explain everything from our perspective, from our worldview, where we are separated from life or from the things or from God. We are separated. And in the East, of course, very different worldview. We feel that we are, you see, I identify with the Easterners here. We feel that we are part of life. We are part of God. And so um, they want to explain happiness then only from their perspective. Like when you are serene, you automatically become a capable person who can tend to business and make relationships work. Yeah. And then the Westerners would say, well, when you know how to generate flow, 
like what Chick sent me, I talked about, you, you then want to do that with another person, you feel connected and you contemplate. And somehow the, he explained in contemplation slash meditation from that Western uh, worldview. And I felt that that really doesn't work for a great many people. Really, the truth is that that uh, I think we need to come to a balance of the two worldviews and bring them together in our in our practical experience in, in, uh, with our skill level. Well, of course, now the idea mm-hmm. that there's an Eastern way and a Western way. I mean, here we are, you're a Zen psychologist, yeah. and I'm a meditating business person. That's right. And, mm-hmm. and so there is this, the separation doesn't actually exist in who we are today. We're both. Mm-hmm. We are both. And uh, you wouldn't expect your, the people who work for you to, to do a good job just because they meditate and because they feel one and they're kind and have compassion and they're happy in that way. But you want them to have real skills. And uh, hopefully, for their own sake, they have good relationships and they have the know-how of how relationships work. And uh, as as important as kindness is and compassion that is so important in Buddhism, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, it doesn't make, it's not enough of a skill to make relationships work. It's such a big part, can't even be stressed enough, but... It isn't the whole story of how relationships work. So, for you, it comes, you know, it, it it comes natural now. So somehow that means you have, if you consider yourself a happy person, which I think you do, you have these skills available to you. You you know how to make business work. You know how to to uh, have relationships, I believe, and uh, and you know how to be serene and how to be in touch with your own consciousness, with your mind. And I think that makes for a whole person, that makes for a whole happiness. Now, you know, first of all, I just want to say I, I love mm-hmm. for a moment here thinking of myself as a happy person. That's wonderful. Let's just take a moment. You know, I don't think I always was a happy person, mm-hmm. and which yeah. uh, brings a question to the forefront, which is as you were talking and mm-hmm. I was reflecting on, is it true? And I thought, you know, it is actually true. I am happy. The reason, though, I would say is primarily because of the health of my relationships and my primary relationships and all the relationships in my life. And I know that's one of the themes you touch on in your book. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit about what you think the role of relationships are in happiness. And when you talk about this basic mode Mm -hmm. and then the supreme mode, where do relationships fit in that? Very good question. I think that I put relationships or connections in the basic mode category and uh, it was a little bit tricky because it so often overlaps with the supreme mode as well especially when we are in love Um, but I think that relationships are number one you ask what's the role of it I think it's probably the most important ingredient to happiness that we have from your research you think it's number one? Oh yeah or I mean practically all all research studies that examine that would come to that conclusion people being in love you ask students on a campus how are you and that would, was always the most important factor why they would consider themselves happy or unhappy if they had good relationships. People live longer when they have good relationships. Even if it's a relationship with a dog, mm-hmm. you just need relationships. We are just structured like that. We are human beings. 
So relationships, they found themselves in the basic mode in my book because I think for us to make relationships work, we have to experience the other as another. You know, in, in Buddhism and in Hinduism, we want to be free of the delusion of separateness. We right. want to feel one and, and, and find commonalities between people and relate and have empathy and, and walk in the other person's moccasins. But um, it, I think it is very, very important not to become enmeshed for functioning relationships. You need to see who you are as an individual in contrast to another person. You need to set boundaries with another person at times. You need to assert yourself. You need to see them and listen to them not as you. This is not me. You know, it's too many projections take place when we do that, become enmeshed and we don't really see the otherness. You know? Yeah, it's interesting mm-hmm. that you're you're coming to this because, as, of course, as you said, there's you can understand relationships from the perspective of unity. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that you're emphasizing, in terms of happiness, mm-hmm. the importance of recognizing difference in mm-hmm. relationship. Because I can imagine hearing someone from a different perspective saying, you know, it's only if you know your oneness with another person, that you can really be happy. But you're, you're saying quite the opposite here in terms of emphasizing this other point. Yeah. You're a psychologist. You work with people. You work with people who come in with relationship troubles. It's interesting mm-hmm. that you would underscore this. Yeah, because it is the uh, wonderful things that we can learn from Buddhism about relationships are, you know, they, they can really help our relationships. Um, walking away from a person, I heard Thich Nhat Hanh say, when you're in trouble with somebody, when you're a, having a fight, walk away from that person and find an inner peace so that your, your mind is quiet. So then you go back and engage with a, with, a more, with a kinder and quieter mind. So we can learn so much from Eastern philosophies and religions about relationships. But I think psychology and positive psychology, and just here in the West, we have found a great many things to say about happiness and what makes them work and what would make a dysfunctional relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of understanding the difference in relationship, Mm -hmm. how does that bring me happiness? Well, um, we want to... That frightens a lot of people, right? When you When you... Think of the of the person of the person that you're with as another. Then you also experience yourself as a uh, separate being. That that can be very frightening, and uh, our expectations are oftentimes like this: I want the other person to read my mind. I want them to know who I am and what my needs are. And by seeing the other person as another, we we might experience a great deal of anxiety and uh, frustration because if the other person is really another that means I have to really um, I have to come to terms terms with this I have to find ways to communicate I have to find ways to tell the other person about me and I have to listen to the other person who could be completely different in the other in some ways and have to learn about the other person and so I think it actually helps us to get rid of some of our preconceived notions about the other. 
Yeah, when we, especially when we are together with a person for a long time, we think, oh, this is, I know this person, so this is what my husband or my partner, that, that's what they're going to do and feel. And we, we, we then refrain from asking questions. Mm-hmm. So how, and we, we lose our curiosity because we are one and we are, you know, somehow enmeshed. And so it's, I think, a very, very important uh, aspect of functioning relationships, of close relationships, that we are coming to terms with our anxiety, accept our responsibility, need to set boundaries with the other person, and, you know, just really seeing the other person for who the other person is and really coming from curiosity and um, not from what I think about the other person. Mm. Now, I want to make sure that our listeners are fully with us in terms of understanding your original contribution to the Mm -hmm. question of happiness, Mm -hmm. which is this categorization Mm -hmm. in these two different modes of happiness, what you call the two wings of happiness, the basic mode and the supreme mode. Mm -hmm. So help us understand how these are both wings and what constitutes the basic mode and what constitutes the supreme mode. Mm -hmm. The wings, I just love that um, metaphor because when I thought of happiness, oftentimes I associated that with birds flying. Uh And I love that one song of Barbara Streisand, why, why not, why just a piece of the sky soar, if you can fly soar. And um, so, Uh, That's where the uh, analogy of the wings came from. Uh, I think we do need both wings, both the basic and the supreme mode, to be fully happy. And uh, so may I start with the basic mode? The basic mode, I think, is when we are in our consciousness focused, and it always has something to do with focus, which always happens in the here and now. When we focus on something that is not within our own consciousness, that is a real thing, a form, uh, something that even though in reality everything is actually connected, we human beings have to see form, have to see different things around us. And when we focus, our brain does that automatically and has to in order to function. So we focus on something outside of our consciousness and we strive towards that in the basic mode. In the survival mode, we may not strive, we just may take, we may just strive for, you know, to be powerful or to be, to be uh, better than the other person. But in the basic mode, we focus on something, something else like a goal something concrete, something that we can define, something sometimes we can touch, something that gives us feedback, that can talk to us back and tells us about our progress, if it's a goal. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a relationship that we are creating. It's like uh, that is a flow, an energetic flow that we are creating between my consciousness and the goal. So there's something going back and forth between me and my goal. And the relationship becomes more important than the goal. So the person loses a strong sense of self. It becomes more about the relationship. 
and the pursuit, the progress, the process. And then uh, also in the basic mode, as I mentioned, would be then concrete people, not mankind, womankind, but um, actually real separate human beings, friends and uh, people we work with, and of course our significant other. Mm-hmm. So we need to then pursue that relationship, right? It, once again, the emphasis is on focus. We focus on the pursuit. That pursuit needs time, needs effort, needs skill, various skills, particular just for relationships, and we need to be able to relate to that person. And that so there is we are once again we are creating an energetic flow with that person. And that sometimes, of course, can go into the supreme mode. There we have an overlap, you know, when you feel the oneness with another person. Mm. So that would be one wing of happiness. That's when our consciousness is focused fiercely in the moment on the other. And then you have in the supreme mode where the consciousness focuses onto itself. So... The form that may that always exists, not just on the outside, but in our mind, the form disappears, and you're focusing on consciousness. And uh, when the mind focuses on mind, when consciousness focuses on consciousness, the differentiation uh, between I and another goes away. You know, we we feel a certain oneness or non-dual a non-dual reality. And um, that is when we experience serenity, when we experience calmness and tranquility. And uh, that is so very, very important. It's, it's, it's the, it, it is as if we need both things in life. We need to labor, put in the work. There is this effort. We can do that in a good way. And that will be conducive to happiness when we do that in the basic mode as opposed to a survival mode. And then we need to let go of effort. You know, it's it, it's more of a letting go process or an, a non-action thing that happens in our consciousness and a focus onto itself. And then we kind of can harvest the fruit of our labor or feel our connection with the fruit. Now, th- this is a wonderful original contribution you're making, and there's a lot here, so I want to take it slowly. So the first thing is you're making a distinction between Mm -hmm. this basic mode of happiness where we go for certain goals Mm -hmm. and just survival drive Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. us. So what's that distinction? How do I know if I'm just coming from survival instincts and therefore my goal is to, you know, have dinner or make enough money to have dinner or whatever? And when am I in this, the thing that you call the basic mode of happiness? This is probably the most important question of all questions. Really? I thought yeah. discovering that relationships were going to make me happy. That was the number one secret to happiness. I I, but let's, let's keep going. Okay. No, I think this is so very important. I think when we take that step that we differentiate between the basic mode and the survival mode, yeah. we have come a long, long way. Um, it is something we need in order to take the next step, the understanding of happiness and learning the different skills. Um, it is so very tempting because we are biological beings. We have our biological nature, right? And within our biological nature is also our 
greater Buddha nature, our awareness. But we have our biological nature. It is always there, and it's always knocking at the door for us to, you know, we, and what it wants from us is that we want that we survive. Yeah. And not just we as people, but our genes. Our genes are supposed to survive at all cost. And uh, that's what we do when we're in the survival mode. We want to, uh, that means we are going to try to be the best. Like I'm trying to be the best right now. I'm a little bit in the survival mode and trying to go into the basic mode. Because then you, 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 um, don't think of of yourself as somebody who needs to be the best, who needs to be better than somebody else. But you, when you are in the basic mode, you just enjoy being in the process, being focusing on the goal, not in order to enhance uh, your ego or to to become powerful or rich but not not for your own self it's not a strong sense of self but you 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 lose that and you can focus on the goal and you can focus on the process and enjoying the process and you you know the difference when you when you becoming all uptight and all afraid you you're probably in the in the survival mode and it's always kind of with us it's always there because we need to be able to survive we need to be able if a tiger came in here right now we need to be able to defend ourselves and want to defend ourselves so it's always kind of ready for us there it can protect us and should but then when we when we are becoming focused on good goals you know good goals not just on surviving and becoming powerful, good goals is, is very, very important, and good relationships, then we start to enjoy the relationship and become lost in the relationship. Okay, so let's say somebody's listening and they're identifying ways that they're clearly in a survival mode in their life. Mm-hmm. They have worries and concerns, and probably when it comes down to survival about money mm-hmm. and, you know, will I have enough and... How do they shift out of that and move into what you're calling the basic mode? They may not necessarily want to go into the basic mode. You know, sometimes when we get so wrapped up into our survival, we may need to sit down quietly and start to calm our mind. We may want to do that first. It really so much depends on the person. You know, um, some people are in in the survival mode and trapped into that, trapped into their pain, and uh, they they are trapped in into their pain because they that's probably what happened to them when they were younger, and uh, some traumatic experience happened or something. They they had to survive, and to address that is important. You know, it's not it's not bad. To be in the survival mode. It's not bad. Uh, the first thing I think that we need to do is say, okay, here's my survival mode. I am in a survival mode. I am anxious. I'm afraid. What am I afraid of? And not immediately judge ourselves and think, oh my God, I shouldn't be in the survival mode. I should be in the basic mode, if not in the supreme mode. But to look at where we are without judgment and to investigate, oh, what this, what is this all about? Do I really need to be afraid here? Mm-hmm. 
And if yes, if there is a threatening situation here, what can I do that's more constructive to get out of there? Or maybe I have to remove myself from a certain situation, mm-hmm. you know. But people, for example, if you're a battered woman at home, you shouldn't try to get into a basic mode. You should try to get out of that situation and get into a better situation. So you want to take that survival mode seriously and look at it without judgment and with kindness, investigate, and then see what's appropriate appropriate for you. Mm-hmm. Do I need to calm myself first? Or do I need to learn certain steps of being self-assertive, of setting boundaries, of becoming my own best friend, which you do when you learn how to be confident, mm-hmm. you become your own best friend. And these are real skills that you can learn. And so, yeah, to, so to know the distinction is the most important. And then to look at it without judgment and with kindness, wherever you are, is the next step. And then to see what skill can I learn or should I right now practice? What, what should I use? What skill shall I use and, and practice? That would be the next step. Now, I just want to underscore mm. one thing because you're saying that knowing this distinction mm-hmm. is very, very important. Yeah. Why is it so important? Yes, because I think because it is, it is always with us. You see, we can't shake our biological nature. If we think we can shake it, I think ultimately it leads to hypocrisy. We we deny then that we are of flesh and blood, you know, that we don't have a body that needs protection, that is afraid when a, when a car comes at us and there's loud noises, right? That, that that's real. And, uh, yeah, I think it's very important to, to know that... W- when we are in a survival mode, and that that's very important. Mm-hmm. And knowing this distinction, though, from the basic mode, why? why I mean, if the, if the idea is that we're supposed to accept that this is natural to us as human beings, yeah. and you, you speak about that so passionately, and, yeah. and, and I, I'm happy to hear you say that. I relax when I hear you say that. I relax with my mm-hmm. own survival instincts and mm-hmm. recognize that it's just part of being a human being. Good, I'm not trying to get rid of it. But then what, what's the importance of recognizing that in terms of happiness, mm-hmm. I, I might want to put more of my energy into this thing you're calling the basic mode, learn certain skills, etc. Yeah, once again, it depends on where you are. Sometimes you need to go and seek out a therapist, a psychologist who helps you with your anxiety in, in a different realm. But if you don't suffer too much, I think it's important for you to understand that there are these skills out there that you can learn, that you can apply, that you can learn how to become more ambitious in a good way. There, there are ways of how to become a, a, a competent person in a good way, not because you want to survive, but you really want to have a good and pleasurable time. You want to experience yourself as a... So you learn good ways of, uh, you know, that's why I call it basic. You, learn, you It's still similar because you're dealing in the world of the concrete, in the world of form, so there's an overlap to the survival mode. But you learn and can learn to to do it in a, in a good way, you know, and like you can create good relationships, seek out good people for yourself, be, be maybe a little bit more selective with who you want to be with. And... Uh, 
become confident instead of angry. Now, mm-hmm. you said something very interesting. You said mm-hmm. good ambition, ambition in a mm-hmm. good way. And, mm-hmm. and I'm very curious about that because often I think some people think, oh, you know, that person's not very happy because they're so ambitious. It's their ambition that's bringing them down. And having a healthy relationship to ambition has been something that has been very important for me to inquire into. So I'm curious, what is that? What do you think that is? Yeah, for me, it was almost like uh, um, taking a risk, putting it in my book, because a lot of people would associate ambition with unhappiness. Oh, this, as you said, this is a very driven person and just lost himself or herself in in the ambition, and ambition led to murder, you know, the uh, so um, good ambition is when we pick goals for ourselves that are congruent with who we are, number one. They need to reflect of who we are as people. So you don't become a lawyer just because you know lawyering makes a lot of money. You become a lawyer only when you enjoy lawyering and you need to know exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. So you need to know what goal you're picking for what reason. And some people don't really choose a goal for themselves. They just accept the goal that was given to them by their parents or by their society. And that's the goal they have and that's the role they play. No more questions asked. And of course, they can't be happy. And then ambition gets bad. You know, you just do it for the wrong reason. You do it for the wrong reasons. If you create a business for the right reasons, it brings out the best in you. Yeah. So uh, also, they need to. Sometimes we pick goals that are not congruent with each other. Um, they are opposing each other. So that would bring out bad ambition as well. So the most important is to find goals that are attainable and that they that that give you feedback that you choose that that are like following your bliss and nobody else's bliss and that you like the rules that you need to play by you know every every goal comes with a set of rules and you need to be able to say yes tell me what you mean maybe give me an example for example if you're in the entertainment industry and you hate to put makeup on don't be in the entertainment industry yeah. so you need to accept that that's part of the rule and if you you know if you're a writer you need to accept that you need to learn computer skills you know you, you just it comes in a in a in a package now, I'm curious to make this a little bit personal for a moment. In your own life, have you found a healthy relationship to ambition as a source of happiness? And have you also seen where ambition has perhaps led to unhappiness for you? How have you sorted that out personally? Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, my ambition was uh, to do something for society, to give something back to society, um, which I felt in the end, I felt privileged to have been able to to learn from the West, from Western thought and Eastern thought, and find a good relationship, and so, so that was my ambition. That was a good thing, right? A very, very good thing. And um, when I overdo it, and that happens to me, good ambition can get bad any time. You know, it's a, you have to have so much awareness. 
You need to really watch over yourself. Good ambition can turn into a bad ambition. Suddenly, I was worried about, you know, my book and it needs to be big. It needs, everybody should benefit from it. People should, and suddenly, oh my goodness, you know, I'm suddenly in the survival mode here. Does it really have to be like this? I asked myself, you know, is it good the way it is? I do my best and let it go. You know, and so I've, I then recentered myself and went back to my good ambition. And so when you overdo it and when you lose perspective, when you are too focused on the goal instead of on the process, when you no longer practice letting go, you know, then it can turn into, that's milk, good milk can turn sour, good ambition can turn bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the interesting points you make when you're describing this basic mode of relating to some kind of other, some external goal or person and putting our attention towards it, is that this whole basic mode is in response to the fragility of life. Yeah. Can, can you explain that? How is the basic mode a response to fragility? You know, when I uh, thought of life, the whole of life, I... I don't just think of one particular aspect of life. I try to see it as a kind of a yin and yang thing where you have strengths here and you have fragility there. Life is is really both. Life is wonderful, a miracle that we can rejoice in, that we can open our eyes to. But it also can it because it's very fragile. We we can lose our lives in an accident. I mean, things go wrong in a split second, and we lose things. We we die. We bad things happen. Bad events happen. Bad feelings happen. And so, uh, to me, it was very important to see that happiness is really accepting that life is both that it isn't just one or the other. It's not just, oh, my God, hard work. It's not just, you know, it's business. I have no time for happiness. It's, it is both. It has a very, very important, wonderful strength to it. And then it has fragility to it. And it has to be like this. It's like life and death. It has to be like this. For us to be alive, there has to be death. It somehow creates the whole of life. And it's all there and to accept that and work with that, work with that in a positive way. I think that was so very important to me, that that we can work with that, you know? And then, the, once again, though I'm still not quite clear, this relationship between this fragile part of life, and I completely understand what you mean when you talk about life's fragility, and I'm sure our listeners are also tracking with that, mm -hmm. but how does life's fragility relate to the goals that we set and the skills that we need to develop and this whole area that you call the basic mode of happiness? Basically, I think that fragility of life necessitates exertion. It's a kind of happiness that we can't get around. We need to deal with it and we either do it in a bad way and st get stuck in the survival mode or we do it in a good way and enter the and access the, the basic mode. But we we need to accept it as part of life and it 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 necessitates that we are that we are exerting ourselves that we are that we are seeing form you know yes it's true 
from the Eastern perspective and from my perspective at all times. Yes, it's true that it really is an illusion that there isn't this big space between us, that we are connected, that everything is one in multifaceted life. It's all a diamond that reflects each other. That is all true. But the fact that we are in this fragile world makes it so that we have to deal with it, that we have to see form, that we have to be able to relate to it in a positive way. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. So Andrea, I think I have a, a feeling at least for the basic mode. Let's move to the supreme mode. And tell me what kind of happiness lives in the supreme mode. In the supreme mode, we, to various degrees, can focus on, on the mind, on consciousness itself. And that is basically focusing on life itself. You know, and as life happens in our consciousness, it is, a, it is really a relationship that we're having with life when we are in the supreme mode, a direct experience of life. It just really gives us a sense of peace. And I can even feel it now, even though I'm a little bit in the basic mode right now. I can, still, I can already feel it just by talking about it, that when we, when we are focusing on the oneness, on all of life, it creates inner peace inside of us. Now, what's so interesting to me about your unified theory of happiness is, you know, I've, of course, spoken to people and read books that say, you know, if you want to be happy, you need to, mm. you know, set certain targets, exercise a certain amount, do this, do that. And, of course, you hear other people who say, look, if you want to be happy, just open, open your heart, open your being. Mm -hmm. It's right here. And really what you're saying in this unified theory is that, we can and we actually need both kinds? Is that what you're saying, that actually both of these forms are necessary? I do. I think that both are necessary. It's like, and, and, and that's why I think it's so very important that we don't immediately rush to judgment when we hear about one side, the basic mode or survival mode or supreme mode, but that we just look at it and say, okay, this is what's here. This is, this is what manifests right now. And we don't immediately say, oh, this person should just be this, do that. I think that lacks compassion, actually. Just open your eyes and be happy. Now, that's a wonderful thing when you can do it. And it's actually a lack of compassion to just throw this out and come with that much judgment mm -hmm. you know, to the table. So for me, it's like this. I don't know if that fits, but, you know, for me, um, heaven is when I can open my eyes to life as it is, when I can really see the splendor, the miracle of life. This we would call the supreme mode, yes? Mm -hmm. 
when I can see it, when I'm in touch with it. Now, the awareness of that can be with me at all times. It's somewhere in the back of my mind, even though I go into the basic mode, maybe, in that I relate to you as a concrete person over there, and that I have a goal, I want to ha I have a topic, I want to explain certain particular things. But that basic, that supreme mode, that experience is somewhat with me at all times. That's in, that's my background that I never lose. But when people cannot open their eyes to that, that's hell. And I cannot cast judgment on anybody who cannot open their eyes. They may live in hell for a very good reason. I used to live in hell. I know how it was. If I heard things like, oh, just do this, do just do that in the basic mode, even, or in the supreme mode, it meant not, wouldn't, it mean nothing to me, right? So I think it's so very important that we, that we accept that all of what we're experiencing, the, all the different modes that we're experiencing have their place, have meaning in our lives, and that when we practice these two modes, and understand the survival mode and help us along with the survival mode and practice the basic and the supreme mode, we're becoming more and more um, flexible with these two modes. We, we, we know somehow the supreme mode is in the back. We know we have access to the basic mode at all times. You know, So this is, it, it's, it's going to grow basically together in our experience mm -hmm. as one because mm -hmm. we only have one consciousness you know it's not that the survivor that the supreme mode is on one side and the basic mode is on the other they are somewhat unified always you know mm -hmm. i don't need to do that yeah mm -hmm. i think an important correction that you're offering is as i really do hear this from people people who have read a certain number of spiritual books they'll say things like well you know the secret to happiness is just being, mm. or just accepting what is. And what I hear you saying, and, and tell me if this is correct, is not that that's necessarily quote-unquote wrong, but that it seems incomplete to you. That's right. It's not no, that's not true. No, it's yes, and. And you might need to develop some skills. That's right. And you might need to set certain goals, and you know there may be some relationship development work that's needed, and, and all of that could actually create greater happiness than just right. saying, well, I just accept what is and, and that's it. And that's right. And it is true that when we are in the supreme mode, when we have that inner peace available to ourselves, then it is easier for us to go out in the world and do the things that we must and, and, and work with our partner, however difficult they may be that day or we may be difficult. So it's easier. It, everything comes easier when you have access to the supreme mode Everything, you know, it lends itself to developing skills in the basic mode, but you still have to develop them. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes it more accessible, uh, but it is you still need to practice the skills. And the same could be said from the basic mode as well. So from a more action-oriented person, they could say, actually, when I do the right thing, when I know my stuff, when I'm competent, and I have the right connections, I can, 
I am actually much more prone to sitting down and being quiet and taking the time to just be. So you have a lot of very, very you know, variances. You just, we have so many people. How can one thing, one worldview, one thing we say ever be true for all of us? Mm-hmm. You know, it's we are all at a different place, different moment, different ways. The men oftentimes want to start with action. And women may tend to be more in the connection of the basic mode as opposed to being goal-oriented. And then there are all kinds of mixes, you know. We have a lot of just differentness in individuals. And I think it's important to look at the individual so the listener or the reader understands, uh, you know, it's all acceptable, it's all good. I can look at it from where I am, don't need to switch, and grow from there. Just don't close your eyes to the other side. You know, don't yeah. don't become so rigid. Oh, my God, you know, all is agape. All, yeah. is, all is love and all is compassion and that's it. I don't need to exert myself out there. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. I've heard you mention a couple times this idea of skills, that you know, mm-hmm. we might need to develop skills. And I'm curious if... Happiness, this full engagement in life, mm-hmm. is my goal. Then, what do you think are the most important skills in general that people might need to develop? Just in general, I know it's a big generalization. It's a big uh, question. Um, so um, the so I think it's important to be able to find your good goals in life and to be able to pursue these goals with relative skill with competence so you need to be able to identify areas where you need to grow and discover maybe also the joy of competencies so that you keep on growing because growing and learning is happiness too Mm -hmm. just learning skills new skills uh, and to stay open to that and keep practicing is a very important skill so to to come up with a strategy for yourself how to go about pursuing your goals is very important. And um, confidence is a very important skill. Now, confidence is a skill or confidence is something that the gods give me or don't give me? Well, confidence is, is really something that comes to us when we accept ourselves as a, uh, as a whole person. Just like we need to accept life as a whole of being strong and being fragile, we need to also accept ourselves with all our good and the bad. You know, so much of psychology is actually focused on that. We need to accept that there is a shadow, that there is this light, there all these different facets. We have strengths and weaknesses. And confidence is really when we relate to us as a whole person and not just to the bad stuff that will drag us down. And not just to the good stuff, then we become grandiose and live in fantasy. So that is not very conducive to happiness either. Mm-hmm. But to relate to, uh, to who we are as, a, as an authentic person and to live from that center. And then I compare to becoming our very own best friend who does not, who knows her very well, may give us advice and help us along with our weaknesses but doesn't judge us from that perspective, you know, mm-hmm. just sees the strength. And these are, these are skills uh, to, to become our own best friend and accept us with everything. 
And then there are skills relationships. We we can see so easily when other relationships don't work. What's wrong with them? Yeah. But when we are in it, it's so difficult to see where we go I'm wrong. With you. Yeah. It's so hard to see what we can do. And so in my book, I laid out 10 building blocks. I dissected it so that it becomes a little bit easier to follow along what makes a good relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I actually have 10 building blocks. You see, okay, part of it is validation. You know, a lot of people that are unhappy, they can't have intimate relationships are surprised to learn that there's something very small missing in their connection. Could be as small as not being able to nod when the other person says something. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and making sure that the other person understands that you have understand. So it's, it can be a very small thing, but if you miss it, your whole connection can fall apart. So you want to pay attention. That These are real skills that you can learn. Anybody can learn. If you if you open your eyes to them and make them, you know, mm -hmm. accessible. So, Andrea, I just have two uh, final questions for you. So, one, you make a very interesting statement in your book, A Unified Theory of Happiness, that happiness is a commitment. You use this word, commitment. Can you explain that? What am I committing to if I want happiness? It is accepting that happiness doesn't automatically come. You know, it, it is, it is getting away from Aristotle's premise that our all ultimate goal is to want to be happy. That is, I don't think, true. I don't think we all want to be happy. I think we all want to survive and survive really well. You know, during that time in Aristotle, 2,000 more years ago, wrote that he did not know anything about surviving well, genes, or anything like that. There was no such thing as a biological nature that he knew of. So I, I, I think it's very important for us to accept that we, are, that we need to consciously set the goal of happiness that we can add that to our goal of survival. And that can it can o override our goal of survival even. But what it takes enormous commitment for us to go there. It's really the road less traveled. Mm -hmm. It's not what we are, you know, our biological nature doesn't give us much help with that. But at least our biological nature gave us the potential to go beyond our survival, right? Mm -hmm. we, it, it gave us that potential. We can choose. We can go down the road less traveled. We can try to see the flower, you know, instead of chasing, uh, chasing the tiger. You know, mm -hmm. we can we can do that. So, but for us to realize that. And to set good goals and not drift off into the survival mode and to really become peaceful, even though we are of flesh and blood, I think really takes a lot of commitment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and now my final question. Our mm -hmm. program's called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what someone's growing edge is. And in your case, in relationship to happiness, what would you say is the sort of growing edge of your life in terms of your own happiness? 
what what does that grow? It's the first growing time I hear this. Growing edge means uh-huh. kind of like your mm-hmm. own learning edge, your own mm-hmm. edge of discovery, mm-hmm. related to increasing your own happiness. Hmm. Good question. I think for me, during my learning experience and my own research, I said no a lot. That's not true. No, that's not right. You know, uh, I, whenever I hear somebody speak about, used to hear somebody speak about happiness, I used to go, no, that's not complete. That's not the whole story. What about that person? What about this person? That's not my experience. I remember that. So for me, maybe the greatest learning experience was to say, yes, that's true, and something else too. You know, this this covers one area, and I can say yes to that. I don't have to be rigid. I don't have to be right about one particular point, but I can still see the other side and add that to it. So it kind of freed me up. It made me feel like I can be more authentic without the fight. I can relax and say it's, it is there's so much out there and it's all good and so much can be learned and unified. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that answer, but I want to dig mm-hmm. a little bit deeper if that's sure. okay, which is I think that that answer makes a lot of sense in mm-hmm. terms of the edge of your professional life as a Mm -hmm. researcher and theorist and as a psychologist. But I'm curious what your growing edge is in terms of your own happiness factor, if you will, Mm -hmm. like where you think you might find more happiness as you grow and evolve as a person, what that edge might be like for you. My ongoing practice, uh, I take my meditation very, very seriously. As I studied Eastern philosophies, I really, really got into practicing Zen psychology, Zen, Zen Buddhism, sitting down and really saying, okay, I do exercise, I do have a good, I do have good nutrition, I do have good relationships, but I really take this very seriously to give myself this time and really try not to multitask I used to try to multitask. We allegedly, women are so good at it. And I just said, no, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was a big change for me. I said, I do one thing after the other. Mm-hmm. I'm not the, not the multitasking person. I am the person who needs to do thing one thing after another, you know, in a serene way. Maybe really taking my time for, for, for accessing my supreme mode more seriously and really giving it the time that it needs. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Dr. Andrea Pollard. She's the author of a new Sounds True book, A Unified Theory of Happiness, An East Meets West Approach to Fully Loving Your Life. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>